Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. And they were planning on killing Fat and these dealers so they could take over the cave. You gotta know what's true. And you gotta know what's false. Come on, they mess somebody. Yeah, I was hurt about the situation, but what am I gonna do? Keep crying about it? No. Why did they take everybody out? Because they knew Fat would start up again and they wouldn't be able to go in there if Fat's alive. This is episode nine. Our season two finale, Groundhog Day. I'm your host, David Payne. Two people were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless... Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these... 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. came and sat in my tent. It was Nelson, Francis, Ace, Charles, and Effie. And they all told me that what happened that night, who was all there, who played what part. And what did they tell you about the boys? And That their... they were there only to spectate, that they were going to get paid to say they did it because they're the only ones young enough to live out a life sentence and that they'd have money when they got out, plus money while they were in there. And did they say who was there that night other than the boys? The boys. Francis made sure he was seen at camp by everybody. Ace was stood down below to watch it all go off. It was Nelson and uh, Charles and Bubbles and uh, the three boys and and Juice. Would you share what's going through your head and how you process it now? There's nothing I would do differently. I understand why they did it. I know it's part of the game, part of the risk. As Tracy Bauer would try to come to terms with the consequences of her life choices, another part of the game would barrel relentlessly forward. The retrial of the Tafalusia brothers in Kent. Five months after the first trial ended in a hung jury mistrial, the government has impaneled another jury to take up the case of who shot Tracy, Fat, and Amy Joe and killed James Tran and Janine Brooks. And all the cast is back for this season's retrial. The same judge. All right. The same prosecutors. Once you get situated there, can you tell us your full name and spell your last name, please? And the same defense counsel. So where was Juice on January 26, 2016? But ironically, the stars of this show are two people who have never spoken a line, at least not in court. Remember, I told you, we went up there for a Juice. And the defendants on trial, James and Jerome Toffa Lucia, look pretty good. They've lost weight since the last trial, maybe 30 pounds each. And while the boys may be healthier, defense counsel Dan Norman is most certainly not. Apologize in advance, everybody. (coughs) In fact, 
From day one, this retrial would be cursed with bad health and worse weather. I've got snow Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. With snow and sick days aplenty, the retrial of the teenage brothers for murder proceeds in this weird start and stop fashion that makes it hard to follow a coherent narrative. And the foreperson of the first trial jury, Debbie O'Neill, takes notice. I see a few people glazing over and that this is the time when you start to because it's just such a weighty thing that you're gonna deal with. And I, I'm not sure about all of it, but it seems that the order of presentation with different witnesses and information is different than what ours was. And I thought, oh, okay. They tried something different. They did. The but while the presentations may have shifted, the positions of the parties have significantly hardened, with tribalism on full display. And as we watch the evidence unfold this second time around, given what we had learned, it's even more disconcerting to witness the kid glove treatment the state would need to use on Lucky and Juice to try to make their case. By way of example, here's DA Mary Barbosa asking Juice about his many burner phones. You remember that as being a phone number that you were using in January 2016? <laughs> so Obama didn't give you the phone, correct? All right, it's a program. That was put into place when he was president. Yeah. Okay, and so... And while it was humorous on one level, this exchange showcased the deference the prosecution would need to have with its witnesses in order to help the jury believe in them on the big points. Mr. Leia Tagaga, were you present in the jungle, in the caves at all, the evening of January 26, 2016? No. Were you a part of any robbery that occurred in the cave? Were you a part of any shooting? No. Thank you. I don't have any other questions. Barbosa's now familiar discourse with Juice, though, would pale in comparison to her vouching for Lucky, whose testimony would span 12 days due to snow days, sick outs, and holidays. There are many things about Lucky that aren't pretty. He was selling drugs, he drinks, he smokes, he swears a lot, but he got up there and he told you who he was. He never tried to hide who he was. He told you about the good, the bad, and the ugly about himself. Now, you may not like Lucky. I wasn't so sure that was true, that Lucky told us everything. But Barbosa was right about this. The state doesn't get to pick its witnesses. We didn't pick Lucky. The defendant, James Toffelicia, picked Lucky. When the day after the shooting, he called Lucky and said, I was the one who committed this crime, and now they're looking for juice. And while the DA was correct about not picking her witnesses, the defendant, James Toffelucia, was surely wrong about the police looking for juice. In fact, after we had learned what we had learned about the Samoans' beef with the Vietnamese over the drug trade in the caves, it was even more remarkable how little the police did to track down juice and check out his alibi that night. You didn't ask him the last name of the individual who he was staying with, correct? I did not. Didn't ask him for a phone number for that individual, correct? I did not. Didn't ask for his girlfriend's last name or his friend's wife's last name, correct? I did not. Or any addresses or any phone numbers for anybody, correct? I did not. Okay. 
The only information you have about Juice's whereabouts when this crime was committed was what you have Tracy Bauer saying, that he was the person who committed this crime, and you have Juice saying he wasn't there, correct? Yes. Now, when you spoke with- It was as if the police had so convinced themselves of their narrative, they couldn't even acknowledge the possibility that Juice might have been there, much less have been the shooter. And it was obvious in this retrial that that failure by Detective Cooper would be as equally detrimental to the prosecutor's case this second time around. And I'm like, do you realize there's three boys? There were seven of them there that night, seven of them that night, seven. What about the other four? Yeah. Tracy Bauer, shot in the back by the man she identified consistently as Juice, has little empathy for the police investigation. Because he told me it was a done deal, not to worry about it. Who told you it was a done deal? Cooper. Recently? No, when I woke up in the hospital. When I told him who, what, who I saw, and Amy Jo was in the room too, and she said who she saw, he said, no, we have a signed confession, we have the gun, it's a done deal. They even had me look through pictures and I didn't recognize the boys. I didn't pick the boys out. Sometimes I wonder if this has something to do with covering that fuck up. Because it's not a done deal when you got two people in the same room saying, no, it's not the boys, it was somebody else. Tracy's antipathy for the police met its match in a government that would in its quest for a conviction of the Toffa-Lucia brothers in this retrial, lose sight of their victims. Every survivor of the shooting, Fat, Amy, Joe, and Tracy, as well as the other homeless civilians, would all be subject to material witness warrants, and many of them would be locked up to ensure their appearance at trial. And if it was fair to say the government was treating the homeless victims poorly, it was also true that the people who Tracy implicated in the jungle murders would take it to an entirely different level. Tell us a little bit about the fire. Can you share about the fire? Yeah, then the trial's gonna begin. I was up there in a tent and I'd gone to sleep and one of the Samoans from across the way um, had come over and he went to turn on the heater and one of the tanks was on and leaking. So it exploded and there was 12 other tanks in that tent as well. And my tent was starting to catch fire and all the tanks just went off. So do you feel like the fire was intentional? I do, considering that I'm one of the only key witnesses and this is a week before the trial and they don't go into my cousin's tent when she's not there. This is something not allowed and something they don't do. And did the cops help? in that or not, or they just blew it off? No, they were there the next morning and got me out of there. They believed this was a threat of my life as well. But if the cops really believed that, they sure didn't seem to be going out of their way to treat Tracy like a victim. In fact, perhaps the most startling but not surprising thing we observed in the retrial was the disparate treatment the cooperating witnesses got versus the shooting victims that didn't help the case. Remember those four drug dealing cases Lucky had that turned him into a snitch in the first place? Now, you had another case pending, is that right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And you had asked Detective Huber for some help on that case? Yes, ma'am. And do you know if he sent the 
prosecutor's <coughs> office an email on your behalf? Uh, I believe he did. Indeed, he did. In fact, all of Lucky's drug cases would be pleaded down to misdemeanors or dismissed. And whether or not that was an appropriate price for the government to pay, for someone to come forward and act as an informant, is hard to say. But Lucky's stated reason for coming forward, to protect the lives of his, quote, blood nephews, James and Jerome, got a little more suspect in the second trial. Now, you say you are related to the boys through their mom, Lisa? Yes, sir. And she go by the name Red? Yes, sir. Would it be true that you are not actually an uncle to these boys, but you call yourself that? Um, the way they were treating me, why not? Uncle, Uncle Luck. I'm not questioning that, I'm just asking you factually. You're not actually their uncle, is that correct? I don't think so. And if it was a surprise that Lucky wasn't actually the boy's uncle, it would be an even bigger surprise who Lucky's uncle was. I want to ask you about the Dearborn jungle. Back in late 2015 into 2016, there were a number of homeless Samoan individuals living at that site in Dearborn. Yes, sir. Did Reno live there? Yes, sir. Juice that we've been talking about live there? Off and on. Guy named Ace lived there as well, correct? So one of the elders in the jungle, Uncle Ace, was Lucky's blood uncle. And the other? So Uncle Francis lived there as well, correct? Yes, sir. And would it be fair to say that Uncle Francis was kind of the unofficial head of your, call it group, crew, whatever? Yes, sir. And while this cross-examination of Lucky would start to fill in the gaps on where potential allegiances lay. It wouldn't be until after the trial that we would learn of another familial connection that would rock our fundamental understanding of what happened in the jungle. Did you know the boys? No, I don't think I ever met them before or seen them before. But are you were you related? You mentioned that they were cousins and what's yeah, the They're my cousins, sons, you know, cousins. I hadn't met them. Right. But I guess they knew of me. They all knew that I was up there running it, and that was off. And so while it was shocking to learn that Tracy Bauer was cousins with the two defendants on trial, her motherly instincts towards the people involved in the shooting was even more surprising. That's my family. My cousin has babies with Samoans. These are their uncles, their cousins. I was really there for the people in the cave. I took care of a lot of them. I took time to pray for all of them every night and wish them good night. That Tracy would be praying for the people who shot up the camp was a testament to just how little outsiders could comprehend the ways of the jungle. And as if on cue, after another seven-week trial, the retrial jury would render its corresponding judgment. And the first person we thought we should call was the four-person from the first trial jury, Debbie O'Neill. Wait a minute. There we go. Are you there? Hi. Yes, I am here. At 10.34, just shy of five full days, they came back. Really? It was, are you ready for this? Yep. I'm sitting down. It was a hung jury. Again. Again. Wow. I told you I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happened. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I, I mean, I'm not surprised, you know, because... 
when I looked at the jury the last time I was there during the closing, I was like, hmm, I know what they're going through right now. And while Debbie O'Neill would be amazed that the prosecution didn't get a conviction this second time around, Tracy Bauer was shocked for the opposite reason. So we wanted to follow up with you, but I think that the first thing we should probably share is that the jury came back today. It was another hung jury. The fuck? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? There were six people the first time that said this person's name. Mm-hmm. How could it have been a hung jury then? And then after this again, how can it still be a hung jury? I mean, so we, I wish I knew I could be in that room that they explain why they're, they're choosing what they're choosing. Of course, what Tracy wasn't fully processing in her shock was the disconnect between what she knew and what she had been asked to testify about. You see, these jurors would never be privy to what Tracy says happened at the tent meeting with Uncle Francis and the Samoan elders when she says they told her what happened and who all was there. For starters, that's all hearsay. But more importantly, the government wouldn't want that evidence in because it contradicted their theory of the case. And the defense wouldn't dare try to get it in because it puts the boys at the crime scene and thus subjects them to accomplice liability. They've been deliberating for since last Tuesday. Five days they deliberated. They came back today, just about two hours ago. Sorry. Yeah, I don't think Fat knows because I just talked to him not last night, but the night before. There wouldn't. It just happened two hours ago. Not even, yeah. You know, I I think it's going to be months before you have to deal with this again. There'll be time to process it. Yeah. I'm worried I'm going to forget some of it, you know, between now and then. But I know that that, I don't think I'll ever be able to forget that night. Didn't mean to ruin your day. No, no. Another person whose day would be ruined was defense counsel Dan Norman. While it's generally accepted that a hung jury is a win for the defense, Norman has spent three years on this case to the detriment of both his wallet and other clients. So we're here with Dan Norman. The trial has just been declared a mistrial, and we're wondering what the next steps are in the process. The next step is we wait to see whether the state decides to retry the case, which I assume they will, but that is in their discretion to make that determination. How are you feeling after all this since January 17th to now? Tired and need a little time to assess everything and then refocus for whatever happens next. So tell us what happens to the boys now. The trial was declared a mistrial. They go back to jail where they've been since February of 2016, and they presumably stay there until this matter is resolved. Are they still in the juvenile facility? Resolution in this case, though, seems as elusive as our search for hope. And despite all the seeming futility, I remain determined to find it among the many people we talked to for this story, starting with disgraced firefighter Scott Bulleen. Jody knows this about me. I'm always looking for where the hope is in the story. That's good. Where do you see hope? I see hope that I move on with my life and that someday society can forgive me or look at this objectively or experience something like this and understand so that they know what really happened. And just like the firefighter, 
Crime reporter Levi Polkinen would find hope in the broader efforts of the city writ large. I find hope in almost all of these public actions are motivated by a sense of compassion and duty to people who are suffering. And I do think that we haven't done enough. We haven't done it the right way every time. But there's no denying that these are people and that they deserve to participate in society. But of all the people we met along the way, it would be 100-pound, 5-foot-tall Tracy Bauer who would inspire the most hope in her ability to survive the jungle and her demons with her humanity intact. You mentioned something about forgiveness, that you've forgiven the people involved. and You know, I have, and, um, you know, like I said, this is part of the game we're in and part of the risk. And, you know, it's a possibility. At the same time, I feel bad for these boys. They were asked to do something that really, at their age, they can't comprehend the reality of it and the time away for this crime, how much time it really is, because they don't have the concept of how much time it is because they haven't lived that much time yet. It's not right, and it's, it's really not fair. Even if they were to get their money weekly, it couldn't be enough to say they did this when it wasn't the reality of that. And if the shooting had any silver lining, it was that it would be the impetus for Tracy getting out of the jungle and into a rent-subsidized apartment. This building and the navigation center where I went when my tent blew up, these buildings are here because the night we all got shot. It's when the mayor opened up a state emergency on the homeless. Do you think about what the future looks like for you? I do, and I think a lot. I really haven't decided which direction I'm really am here for or what I should do. I want to show my thankfulness for this place by letting the public be aware of it and letting people know that it could be them at any time or their kids or their, their brothers or sisters or their mom or dads. You never know. Don't ever say never, because I did. I wouldn't look at the people holding the signs. I, that was never going to be me, never going to be me. And it, it sure was. It sure was, and it sure was but they don't have that chance without this place. And you gotta have some type of hope and you gotta take some type of risk to find out. And the more hope you give someone, the more likely it's gonna happen. Fast forward now to the spring of 2019, three years after the jungle murders. While we wait for the third retrial to begin, we decide it's time to take one more field trip. All right, last time into the jungle. You looking for it or against? I'm always looking forward to come down here. It's a magical mystery. Looks like there was a fire kind of near Francis's old spot. There's like nobody here anymore. It's like a ghost town. Jody, look, the heavy bag is down. Two heavy bags. Wow, this place is so different than when we were here. The whole place has got it. Yeah. Jesus. As we make our way through the jungle, we see that Uncle Francis no longer sits atop his throne in the treehouse. We would later learn he's been locked up for an alleged assault. And with the king gone, the disciples have apparently scattered to the wind. And if there ever was a master plan for the Samoans to dethrone King Fat and Queen Tracy to take over the drug trade, this desolate campsite 
is testament to its failure. As the sun sinks below the horizon, a sense of melancholy permeates the room where we meet up with Tracy Bauer one last time. And I'm almost afraid to ask the question, has anything changed? Have the Samoans and the Vietnamese resolved their differences and everybody's got their own spot now, or is that still a problem? I mean, there's really not that many friends and spots have been kind of just absorbed by the people. You know, Ace is kind of up there, but he's just doing his thing by himself. And I think Nelson went to jail, too. And Charles is in jail. And just the youngsters are left up there. They're kind of spread out. Dearborn just, like, became nobody. No more traffic at all. And with Francis not being there, no more traffic at all. And as was true in all of history, the Far Easters would take a decidedly longer view, laying waste to the South with the city's help and reclaiming the north end of the jungle. Have you heard from Fat or not? Yeah, he called the other night. He called me. He's back in the jungle. He got out just last week. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how busy his spot is, but you know, that's pretty much just Vietnamese right there. And it wasn't just Fat who was back in the jungle. I heard Black Long's out too, but wow. I'm not sure. For was real. he back in the I jungle? I my own eyes, no. Okay. I heard he was thinking of doing something with Fat. Black, Long, and Fat teaming up. Yeah, they were together originally. Originally back in the day, they were together. And so, after all the arrests, the trials, the political pronouncements, the tent sweeps, the fence debate, Black, Long, and Fat were back on the throne. The 2016 jungle shootings had left two people senselessly dead and three others scarred for life. And with still unresolved questions of justice for everyone under the freeway that night, it made me wonder if the search for truth was as elusive as the search for hope. This fall, the Taafalusia brothers will be back on trial for murder a third time. The homeless witnesses will get locked up on material witness warrants. The prosecution will have to vouch for lucky, fat, and juice. The defense will obfuscate. And the jury? Hopefully, they'll see through it all and find a way to the truth. Take me back to the jungle. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. And let's be honest, no one does this stuff alone. We'd like to thank our partners at Warner Media, who've helped us promote, sell, distribute this season of Somebody Somewhere, including, but now limited to, Tyler Moody, Kathy Govier, Heather Baldino, Robin Watson, Mark Chinesky, Harris Hoffberg, Jarrett Bellini, Kendra Russell, and of course, 
Stacy Para. Thanks for joining us. Take me back to the jungle.